Welcome to the Live at Spur podcast. I'm Brock Winstead. Spur is a member-supported nonprofit that promotes good planning and good government, putting ideas and action together to make a better city and region. One of the ways we do that is by hosting discussions, presentations, and other events with leading planners, designers, and urban thinkers. This podcast helps us share some of those great events with a wider audience. And we'd love to hear what you think. You can email us at info at spur.org or tweet at spur underscore urbanist. In this Live at Spur podcast, we have a conversation about the role of architecture and design in the public life of cities and the role an architecture critic can play in shaping discussions about not just individual buildings, but how we build. Michael Kimmelman is the award-winning architecture critic for the New York Times, a position he's held since 2011. Kimmelman has written on issues of public housing, public space, infrastructure, community development, and social responsibility. On June 1, 2015, Kimmelman visited the Spur Urban Center in San Francisco to talk about some of the topics he's covered for the Times and how he thinks about his role in public discourse about the built environment. Kimmelman spoke with Allison Arieff, Arief is editorial director for Spur and writes about architecture and design for the New York Times, California Sunday Magazine, and other publications. Here's Allison in conversation with New York Times architecture critic Michael Kimmelman on the Live at Spur podcast. Uh, that are so vast and unpredictable, 
the city, the owner of this five-acre lot, the first lot they were going to buy, twelve million dollars in an eminent domain proceeding. They had taken to condemnation court, and they threatened to then a former city councilman of the very district. He made two of both sides that he favored the landlord, and so the city settled out of court for ninety-five million dollars. So twelve million dollars on a five-acre parcel that's suddenly costing almost $100 million without any of the remediation or creation of So this was getting lost until the owner of the parcel next to that part of the lot, a guy named Norm Brodsky, took the jackpot and was apparently asking for his 11 acres at $500 million, which, you know, there's no way that will pencil out for anybody. But in any case, Conversation. But the reality is that so much of what uh, actually happened in the process of moving from idea to realization is kind of chaos. <laughs> and in, in here, you, uh, what I meant was you didn't really have bad intentions. Um, you didn't even have some identifiable mistake. It isn't that the Bureau of Administration totally screwed this up. I kept asking everybody, including Grace and everybody, to tell me that. But that isn't really what happened. Is a kind of civic entity, and I end the article um, by mentioning the phrase that Adrian Benefy, the disease general partner, commissioning the city, and that is uh, the uh, in 1964, John Lindsay, mayor of New York, decided to oppose uh, an attempt to get rid of a lot of former recreation centers and old bathhouses. And he decided to tear down an old bathhouse in Chelsea, which what was then a really decrepit neighborhood. To make room for hell sorting facilities, okay, with the promise that Chelsea, this neighborhood, would get a new recreation center. That construction didn't begin on the new recreation center until the mid 70s under Mayor Dean, um, and shortly after it began, the, the New York Department of Children's Services arrived. And so the facility, unfinished, remained at Chelsea for a quarter of a century. When Mayor Giuliani, Remembered this unfulfilled promise and put money aside for the completion of this Chelsea Recreation Center, which then uh, was finished in 2004, and Bloomberg funded it. So, four years later, the community, a very different place, a place that had uh, obviously been largely poor and industrial, finally got a recreation center. I find that Rereading this this week, uh, I didn't know that about the first couple things that it said, and it keeps saying it quote he since the critics were commenting only on the appearance of the asset. And it's true that the major source of excess was the two million dollars earlier that Cuomo owned, which is more than enough for clothing. Why do you think that it isn't anymore? And do you think that really reflects sort of what's being taught in architecture school and, and what architects are Yes, everyone here will agree. 
when I took over this job at point in, in uh, my life, I, I had an idea of what I wanted to do. And I would have done the exact same 10 years ago when the conversation about social clubs came up about becoming a formal institution, formal material invention before anybody interested. Um, and after all, I wrote the work of an architect called Joseph Clark, the formal evolution of architecture as material institutions are uh, of interest to me. They have become very natural. But Clark's book that architecture is larger than natural architecture, particularly where many of you in the room, um, has to do something far more complicated than being a structure. You have to put in toilets and windows, and you have to deal with clients, and you have to deal with different agencies, and budgets, and, and uh, this is not a, um, this process is, I think, profound and complex and for a reason, and produces things that have effects on people's lives, not just in neighborhoods, but blocks and streets and cities and places. So I just believe that conversation of subjects that you can focus on individual buildings that have different qualities is impoverished the discussion about architecture. So, I, you know, I think this is exactly the conversation I would have wanted to participate in. It came out of my bones, having grown up in a teen village in New York City and just the natural way to think about uh, buildings in New York City. But to answer his question, I also think that Yes, there is a generational change taking place, and we see it for all the reasons that, that the room here knows. I mean, uh, I was just in Los Angeles, and you know, there older people seem still amazed that young people might live in Los Angeles without a car and um, take mass transit and uh, have a bicycle. To me, this is not surprising. But I think, you know, I think effective politics, criticism, discourse in, in the public realm depends upon timing, and I think the timing uh, is such that there is an openness to this kind of to a conversation that is broader based on issues of social equity and, and socialist environmental ethics and justice than was the case 10 years ago, and I'm grateful for that. I mean, whether it was due to new generation of, of people coming out of architecture schools or also that way, I, I don't know. I think it's easy to say yes, but I don't that's true. I think it depends on the school and the circumstances. You know, I've been doing a lot of architecture research. Obviously, there are people who want to do the houses, and uh, you know, I understand that's one model of success. Then there are some who don't have the day-to-day -day to enter it. But um, you know, it's not it's not clear to me that that is a single pendulum swing in the way that some people think that there is a hunger for the. I know that 
と会社チームとして働いていて、そこに、まあ、これからも、えー、働きますけれども、バッティングビジター、えー、ここでは、えー、マテリアル、あるいは、ディパーメントの処理、あるいは、ディパーメントの処理、あるいは、ディパーメントの処理、あるいは、ディパーメントの処理、あるいは、ディパーメントの処理、あるいは、ディパーメントの処理、あるいは、ディパーメントの処理、あるいは、ディパーメントの処理、あるいは、ディパーメントの処理、あるいは、ディパーメントの処理、What do uh, urban planning have to do with that? I'm, I'm being a little bit too specific. What do you say what the urban planning uh, process is? I think it's hugely interesting, and maybe I just need to start to talk about it. First of all, and let me just, before I answer directly, I'll say this morning I went to a coffee shop and sat down. This is a very particular thing, right? So I sat down a couple of people sat down with me, a young guy and
this is a large learning process that you're that even if you go through our the process that we're at, we don't have half of our class. Fifty five million people are the large portion of the population. In addition to that, have you had some kind of discussion <coughs> prior to this on other methods of contacting? Because those two organizations seem to be very That was what we sort of instituted at that board of trustees, is the way in which people adapt and make things their own. And we've seen it, you know, uh, everywhere. We, we kind of, if you go to the UK, you're going to see people adapt from being for their own purposes. But um, but here you have a, a situation where people make their own, they use materials that they have and bring what they know and create something new. Now, that's not to say that the people there were happy or liked where they were. But they had no choice, and they wanted therefore to make the best out of their situation, which is for a majority of people on the planet what the situation that they are in. So we should learn from how they do that. And we know this from events around the world. There's an enormous amount of learning about the way people <coughs> make that kind of work themselves. But they also have the power and resources to do the kind of large structural change there should be some top-down and bottom-up collaboration in terms of the way that people do these important things and grow things. And if you don't, you lose them. How much is this measure of student success? I, I spent a couple years working on our idea of public contact at Washington State about this idea, and I got really obsessed with how many schools do we have that have this really broad
no choice but to come up either they bring them up or, or I bring them up. <coughs> so I wrote about Peabody Park, which as a matter of fact is definitely incredibly it was it was almost a sign uh, because it happened just when I started to do this book a few years ago. And I thought here is this declaration of the meaning of public space and its relationship to democracy and the concept of uh, a better society up there. A place like Peabody was designed by the people, not by Isaac Smith hypothetically, told us what it meant. And he said, well, that's where social distinction started. So when there are protests in Spring uh, in Turkey, uh, against what happened in uh, what happened in Syria, of course, uh, they protest that day and things like that. But after Gorbachev had uh, Mubarak came along, Morsi was still in Egypt and Cairo. The question of how people are dealing with what was really happening with leadership, how much there was of this sort of uh, do-it-yourself urbanism, was interesting. And we realized that that was really still there. What I meant by that is, of course, absolutely there was really no political control or anything. People took matters into their own hands, starting with Morsi in one neighborhood, uh, which was bypassed by the ring road that curved downtown. And the neighbors said, well, the hell with this. We'll just build our own on-off ramp onto the highway. And so actually built infrastructure. They just did it. And I thought, well, that's a
fact that we have to forget <coughs> that these are public places just as as we uh, live and who we decide that we are. So I think that conversation is important. And you hear talk about suddenly our culture and the digital infrastructure goes around our voice and gets faster and louder every day. Well, it seems too that that's very contemporary living in Texas and living in Texas can take this longer to move, but it certainly has moved as a, as a major force of our social life and access to the health and yeah. mental health services in Texas has just moved up. Yeah, that, that's very interesting, but I mean, I, I know you're familiar with everybody in this room, but I don't think they're very familiar with this. You know, so when I started off writing about park life and uh, about parking spaces, you know, I mean, I, I got a lot of reactions from people like, what, where'd this come from? Because I think within this community, that's where it is. But I don't think the public thought about it. And, and the relationship of the parking spaces to the transit and environmental issues, I think, is what's second nature to us people here is, is particularly unfamiliar to people at large living in these places. I mean, I, I think um, the next town hall that we've been talking about Texas is this year. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, exactly. Uh, I, I, I do a little quiz with my mother-in-law when I come to San Francisco to see my parents who come to pick up my seven-year-old and my brother-in-law's wife who has four years old. And she's like, everyone here gets super cool cars. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and even my nine-year-old is like, raises this question, why? Well, who says cars? Where has that happened? But I know that when you have the West Side, it's not happening here, but in the natural history, <coughs> von Kalanka comes in, and it's, I think it's 80 Street uh, runs into it. So 80th Street is, it has two, basically two tight lanes for cars, two cars there, four lanes of cars. And then the sidewalks on either side, which are extremely busy, as you can imagine, Millions of people go there and you know live on those streets, which is most of the world. Is I don't know, you know, like ten four inches wide and cracked concrete, and everyone has to stand to the side, and you know you can't push a stroller or you know get a wheelchair in. It's just and you're thinking, what is this place for? And on a Sunday, of course, I'm going to there. So how the hell did that happen? You know, almost everybody is crammed into this tiny little space for the cars in. It's, it's going to dawn on people when I mention that to them. They're like, "What's the, what's the question?" As if they themselves aren't taking walking down these streets every day. Like, oh, well, I mean, I think it's, and I think there is that thing. You know, there is that sort of dawning realization that, that things we take for granted now, first of all, you never realize them, and they may not be uh, even necessary.
thank everyone for coming out. Thank you, Michael, so much. That was Michael Kimmelman, New York Times architecture critic, in conversation with Spur editorial director Allison Arieff. Their talk was recorded at the Spur Urban Center in San Francisco on Monday, June 1st, 2015. We would love to know what you think about this conversation and about the Live at Spur podcast. You can find us on Facebook. We're on Twitter at Spur underscore Urbanist. And there are other ways to get in touch at Spur.org. That's also where you can find our event calendar to check out what's coming up near you. We've got events in San Francisco, San Jose, and Oakland. If you like what you've heard, we hope you'll consider supporting our work by joining Spur. Head over to Spur.org and look for the big blue button that says Join Spur. I'm Brock Winstead. You've been listening to the Live at Spur podcast. We're Spur. We support ideas and action for a better city. Come join us at Spur.org. Thank you.